But now we don't have any value. Um, should we just go straight into the book? Yeah. So sadly, Gareth has canceled our planned discussion of Miss Koizumi <laughs> Loves Ramen in order to yeah. make me discuss, against my will, the new John Darniel novel, Devil House. Yeah, sorry we can't do, like, <laughs> nine hours of talking about whatever random crap talk comes into your head. Okay? <laughs> do that on the Eden podcast, okay? <laughs> shit's professional now <laughs> we're doing a type 5 then we're going to do 45 minutes ad read about uh, Squarespace um, <laughs> then 5 more minutes talking about books then we... five, another 45 on Squarespace then we're out <laughs> when are we going to fit in the mattress commercial I have, I've, I've actually never heard a mattress commercial on a, on a podcast always Squarespace they fucking um, love to advertise Squarespace. I know, and it's a very average uh, CMS. Yeah, like it's it's um, fine. You make a functional website; it's not great. This so, has been CMS Hour. And, um, <laughs> so the new John Darnell novel. Um, we were talking about this before the show, and it's worth getting it out of the way now. Um, this is his fourth novel, technically. Um. A lot of people, myself included, until Gareth corrected me, forget that the 33 and a third entry that he wrote for uh, Black Sabbath's Master of Reality was technically a novella, um, which is the only fiction uh, work under the 33 and a third uh, rubric. So technically that was his debut, but most people consider his debut um, Wolf in White Van, which came out a number of years ago now. And... If we were making a show about Wolf and White Van, we'd feel obligated to tell you about our lengthy history with the music of Mountain Goats and the personal relation. Gareth and I are both white dudes within a certain age. We fucking love the Mountain Goats. Just, yeah, I played yeah. Uh, three of his songs at my wedding. Yeah, it just I only one of them was No Children. I fucking adore uh, his work. You know, the the minute that he started like responding positively to work I'd done, I lost my fucking mind um mm. then later i find out much m more to his credit than to mine he's actually very active and attentive of young working writers and artists and graphic artists and all this kind of stuff he's very involved um mm. yeah awesome. lovely lovely guy Just awesome nice fucking guy. guy and if we were again if we were talking about wolf and white van what many consider his debut we'd feel the need to get really into that stuff um because that'd be relevant because most people weren't reading his debut novel at least at that time based on the idea of him as an author. It was, you know, obviously as this great literary acumen that shows through in his writing all the time, uh, lyrically for the Mountain Goats. He's he's literally won poetry awards for it. So it's like, it's it's a well-known thing, well-credited thing. Um, but thankfully, Wolf and White Van did so well that it led to him being able to put out his second book, Universal Harvester, which was this mode change into making a straight up horror novel rather than the obviously horror was part of wolf and white band and then that did well enough i don't know about straight i don't know about straight up but we'll cover it we'll cover the way in which it's not entirely straight up in, in when later because devil house is not very straight up either yeah i agree yeah. um it's more that i guess if i had to shelve universal harvester i wouldn't feel weird shelving it in horror all of his other books have horror but i wouldn't it's like an ingmar Ber or uh, not ingmar bergman one of the Bergmans. The one that's the director and not the woman. Ingmar, yeah. <laughs> um, so but, the yeah. same seal guy is Ingmar, yeah. Yeah, so now we're, um, thankfully we're talking about Devil House now, which 
he's built up enough of a literary career that we can just talk about him as an author now. I mean, obviously his work for Mountain Goats is still present in the work. Like you can still hear his voice. If you've never read another one of his novels and you only know his music, you could still enter here and still feel like you know the voice that's happening. But yeah, I mean, if, if you were like a huge Mountain Goats fan and picked up this book, you'd, you'd see a lot of his, the things he keeps coming back to his music, like kind of small town losers who like fantasy uh, novels and doodle people, big bar barbarians in their notebooks. Those kind of people who keep turning up in his songs, uh, broken homes, uh, yeah, murder. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a lot. You'd probably notice that he has a few kind of John Darnellish tropes that come up in his, his books and in his, his novels, uh, his music, which they should because, you know, he's a person and he has interests and things yeah. he goes back to. It's not a criticism at all. Because these are good yeah. tropes. Yeah, it's like ha having a literary voice is not a negative. It's like, it's it's absolutely <laughs> not much. like a knock. Like, oh, you have a definable voice and understanding of the relation of literature and life. That's you know, that's yeah. Fuck you for um, <laughs> realizing things work and you enjoy writing about them and you understand certain things more than others. Something I really, really loved about Devil House specifically is something that he drifted away from a little bit in Universal Harvester. It was still present there, but <clears throat> it's this recursion of an element from Wolf and White Van, which is very much a story about the relation of storytelling to real life mm -hmm. and the way that mm -hmm. art can inspire life and then work in these these feedback loops. Um, mm -hmm. Without getting too deep into like spoiling Wolf and White Van, not that I really care about spoilers anyway, but that's like a major, major component of at least one of the surface level conflicts of Wolf and White Fan is this like um, game that the main character has made because he's the a maker of games um, that accidentally inspired to one two teens to run off, one of whom dies, and the other whom other which of whom is uh, like traumatized for life, um, and the weird guilt that he feels about this kind of thing. Um, this <laughs> one puts it way more up front. It's literally in the first chapter uh, or so, and uh, two uh, ratchets it up way higher. <laughs> like teenage satanic porno murders, <laughs> but not. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's another one of those Danielish tropes. It, it it's, it's like um, best ever death metal band I've entered. Yeah, it's loser kids in a small town embrace dungeon dragons and uh, satan and heavy metal because they're bored and yeah that's in wolf and white van it's in, and it's big big in here and in a ton of his music as well and the whole satanic panic the dungeon dragons will make you murder your friends thing it it's again it's it's all here and and again it that's a good thing it's not boring or unoriginal he's not just going back to the well he's exploring these really cool things that he knows a lot about and understands a lot. Um, it, it it reads a lot as him doing this like almost an inversion of like Blue Velvet, the uh um the David Lynch film, where sort of the premise there is that like suburbia hides these gross, weird, insane hyperviolences and things like that. Where mm. for Darnell it's it's exactly the opposite. It's that people within these places 
are so bored precisely by the lack of those things that they're they're driven into an almost psychotic level of fantasy which mm. then in turn is witnessed by others and drives them into paranoia but at no point do these things become real in a certain way like that that's yeah. even present mm. in the the opening chapter when he's talking about the story of the white witch the supposed like hyper cannibal serial killer woman um that it turns out and this is again present within the first chapter um, was actually about to be sexually assaulted in her home by two teenagers and winds up killing them um, in self-defense. Yeah, and she gets called the White Witch because she bought one supermarket like uh, book about witchcraft. And um, yeah, I mean, just to roll back on what Devil House is about. So it, it it's a stent like a lot of the reviews and a lot of the press of this have said it's about true crime. Uh, I, I think... <laughs> Because that's like a hot topic right now. There's like a new great true crime podcast every other week. Um, if anyone hasn't heard of it yet, there's this really good New York Times one called uh, The Trojan Horse Affair. It's I, I won't pick it up. It's really good. But uh, you probably know about, you know, the, the cliches of true crime podcast. Two uh, wine mums with heavy um, vocal fry talking about like, Manson murders and go like yes, a lot, you know. Yeah. Um, th this is not a book about trying to say that that's stupid or corny or anything. It's not a criticism of true crime genre. That in a major way, it goes way deeper than that. So the lead character is a true crime author. He um, has written some pretty successful books on what the aforementioned White Witch, and he. Um, gets passed along a the story of um, a, a double murder that in a small town of uh, it's called Mil Milpatis Milpatis I don't know it's in California it's where if you've ever seen the film River's Edge with Keanu Reeves it was that was in the same town it was about a murder that was in the same town a real life yeah. murder obviously um, yeah uh, so he moves to the to the town. And he moves into the house where this murder take, took place. Um, which you're, you're now going to think, okay, this guy, this guy is a true crime author. He's moved to a town. He's moved into the house where the murder took place. It's either going to be he solves the murder or there's spooky ghosts. And you will get neither of those things from this story, kind of. Um, in in a way, he kind of solves the crime, but um, I was about to say, yeah. like, he doesn't not solve the crime. It's just not yeah. satisfying. <laughs> yeah, and, it, like and deliberately not satisfying. Like it's yeah. it's clear that that's <clears throat> yeah. It, yeah it, 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 this um, it's kind of a book that if you go in thinking it's going to be a certain way, then it's not going to be, and it doesn't do that in a very like infinite jest way where it lays out all the cards all the pieces it would need to be a rollicking adventure story and then purposely doesn't give you any satisfaction from that in a way of like accusing the reader of being uh, basic this isn't about telling people that they're stupid for enjoying true crime stories or horror stories um john darnell is i think most people can say a very empathetic person and he's not profoundly gonna, like, so. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of his <laughs> his bag. Like, his big thing is he has a fuck ton of empathy for pretty much everyone. 
the uh, final page of Wolf and White Van is again without getting too deep into it. That is one of the most cutting pieces of like the way empathy can slice you to the fucking core that I think mm -hmm. I've like ever read. Yeah, it, it it's not um, it's not weepy, simpy empathy. It's the very radical thing, the very like nasty parts of empathy where you're gonna have to. If you want to emp have empathy, you're going to have to empathize with some horrible people at times. I mean, John Darnell is a is a Christian, and he's I was going to say one of the good ones, but that's <laughs> probably a bit, you know. But you you know what I mean? Yeah. If, if, if you had to make a rubric where you make a continuum of good to bad ones, he's going to be way over on one side, where you oh, can yeah. imagine people on the other. Yeah. So so he's basically a person who has to deal with the idea of empathy and forgiveness and uh, like. That's that's the core of the cosmos for him in a very real way. You think that's if you're one of the good one Christians, that's what the whole universe has been about so far. So it's understandable why it keeps coming up in his work, uh, musically and uh, his prose work as well, because he's yeah, a deeply, deeply empathetic person. And he's kind of turning that radical empathy towards just the idea of storytelling in this book. Like, can we actually tell a story? <laughs> like, the, the big question of the book is, yeah, yeah, can you tell a story? Which would seem to be quite simple, but he complicates the matter to a degree that I've previously only thought of in, like, French post-structuralism, where you end up trying to define the word the or something. It's, I do um, love in my French post-structuralists, <laughs> but God, by yeah. God, do they not make it easy to love them? Yeah, and especially with all the pedophilia. Uh, and, yeah, um, that 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 bit's pretty pretty bad, pretty unimpeachably yeah. bad. <laughs> like, the, you mean like, you all signed the, the age of consent letter? <laughs> Ooh, oh mm. no! <laughs> uh, but but my CIA handler told me too. <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of those guys were CIA plants as well. Yeah. Um, but um, where does I go with this? Yeah. So, like, the major big thing is, how, can we tell a story? That, and if we start telling a story, i.e. about, like, a murder that happened in a town, um, where do we end that story? And how can we actually tell it in a way that doesn't leave out some, like, massive parts that you really need to have to know the story? Like... It's um, yeah. It's his kind e of like, sorry, go on. His usage of of the white witch tale, which again, most of the first chapter is elaborating on that. There's some frame around it to set up what the broader um, narrative arc is going to be, but the primary meat of the first chapter is discussing the story of the white witch. Doesn't really come up again later. He'll make some side references to it, but more as a previous thing that he wrote about because it was uh, the main character again is a true crime not or true crime writer. And that was the first book that he wrote was about this. So it comes up in that regard. But he uses that very deliberately to sort of set up exactly what the problem is that you have. On one hand, the, the story as told is this salacious, um, sensationalist tale. The story as received by the people in the courtroom was the story of a crone to be that wasn't nearly as like psychopathic in their behavior but was still cold the reality of the situation was 
a woman defending herself from, from sexual assault. And then later you get the fact that it's two boys doing things there and the two boys doing things um, in the crimes talked about in Devil House later um, clearly meant as a kind of parallel that you even get the tale of like what drives people to do horrible things that it's he uses that first chapter to set up exactly how deep that tension can go of like how one event can spin out into all these different ways of experiencing the event, ways of parsing the event, like ways that you can view um, people sympathetically or unsympathetically and how that allows you to mute or unmute elements of their past that play into it. Like he, he dives really, really deep into like those kinds of guts of like what is a story hmm. yeah because um I, mean, I don't know if this, uh, my counter is spoiler so if you're conscious about those things then don't listen to me but um a, a big big chunk of the later part of the novel is um a letter written to him by the mother of one of the boys who was killed by the white witch who was like this mousy uh, teacher she, she was the boy's um, she was the boy's teacher. Uh, one kid was um, a bit more off the rails than the other one. The other one was kind of just being dragged along. Uh, they were pl both planning to run away from their boring town. They needed money. They decided that she was on her own in her little house. It would be easy to steal all her jewelry. And uh, I'm not even 100% sure that sexual assault was there. There was, I, maybe I misread it, but. They were it's, kind of there was like a robbery, and I, I'm sure she as, thought that was a possibility. It, as they elaborate in the later chapters, it's not there, but as it's presented in the first chapter, at least as he was writing mm. about it, um, it's uh, the testimony that she gives in court was that um, they were coming to sexually assault her, and she just grabbed the first thing available to her to defend herself. Mm. So that's kind of what I meant that like yeah. even the notion of her perception of the event that's happening versus their perception of the event. Um, yeah. It's still a violent event, but a completely different kind of violent event. Hmm. Yeah. And this, um, the mother of one of these kids um, basically lays out in huge detail her, her life and her son's life. And he had a violent father who was an alcoholic. Um, and it's kind of yeah, she's she's kind of accusing uh, Chandler Gage, the true crime writer, of not having empathy with her son, who you know, could have been could have grown up to be a you know, good kid, could have got away from the town, he could have lived his life, but he got into his best friend dragged him along on this on this thing, and it all turned out terrible, and they both ended up getting cut to pieces and thrown in the sea, and. Um, yeah, she's that that part of the novel is really really affecting. Like that was one of the like emotionally just one of the rawest parts of the whole thing. And there's a there's a lot of, of raw emotion in here, as you yeah. can imagine. Yeah, it's it's uh, <laughs> yeah it it's not it's not an extreme book. It's not um, there's the uh, there's no like there's not like um, What's, what's the kind of word I'm looking for here? There's no um, deliberate tugging of heartstrings. There's no like uh, 
a child dies or so, someone get cancer and you know the the very deliberate things you can just do to like ratchet up the emotions um but yeah the, well, it's very raw but it feels very real at the same time like again like an old music um yeah the uh that later chapter has this line in it which i thought kind of kind of like a thesis statement of the whole book that the uh however insistent demands of narrative and convention there were things beyond and beneath those demands that were just as important and perhaps more pressing in the final analysis as in you can tell a ripping true crime story but the bad guys in your story are going to end up being someone's son and maybe he wasn't that bad a guy and um yeah, and if you put that in, you don't get a rollicking true crime story because you don't have your villains in there. They're not these, like, Kathleen monsters that are going to break into a house and, like, you know, they were just some dumb kids who probably um, were just trying to get some money to leave their horrible lives. And, yeah, they chose a really dumb way and horrible way to do it, but um, they have understandable emotions like anyone else yeah he notably doesn't so this is something that gets both misunderstood about those more radical forms of something like christianity or within buddhism it's the term acceptance so the notion of like accepting sexual violence or accepting murder this reads very differently to someone outside of the faith than to someone inside of it because it's a word that when you're outside of the faith means one thing and means a very different thing inside of it where inside of buddhism that kind of acceptance is more like not fighting its reality like not denying mm -hmm. that it exists that kind of acceptance not going like it's good but um <clears throat> yeah but that likewise he as present within those radical forms and as present here he's not going easy on these people like it shouldn't be read as him being like therefore there what they did had no effect whatsoever it's um <clears throat> this actually i think comes it if not in part from his christianity then in part from his like good heart that he finds a commensurate match within uh the type of christianity that he practices of like the bet the primary role that you have to take on and this is mirrored in the main character of of the story is like that of the witness and literally just like a witness to a confession um, and you have to be a compassionate witness to that confession. So it's like he's not absolving these people of things that they've done. It's more just like letting like any true judge uh, people to reveal like the true internals of, of what went on, which. Yeah, just winds up making it just so much more profoundly tragic. Yeah, I was, I was just thinking of. um. Uh, Walter Benjamin's um, thesis on history. I'm sure I've got the name wrong. His whole thing about the angel of history looking back on this like piling up of horror after horror of terrible things and how we're required to like bear witness to all the horrors of history, including like true crime, including like the Holocaust, including Walter Benjamin's death and stuff. And 
our job is to somehow redeem that is to like get into a place where it all not makes sense but it can um we can say okay that terrible thing happened but it got us to here um and yeah chris uh benjamin was a messianic well he was very interested in messianic judaism so it's close to christianity there um and obviously yeah christianity does would say that yeah whatever terrible things happens it's all going to come out okay in the end um and our job in the meantime is to you know bear witness to this and to kind of have that acceptance that isn't really acceptance in the way we kind of talk about it day-to-day -day lives we don't accept murder and rape we but we can realize that they happen and it's kind of like the i think one of like the very earliest things we talked about in this show in reference to extreme metal which is a thing again john daniel is very interesting he's got very oh, yeah. good taste um and that's a lot of people aren't going to understand why you listen to a, a song like hammer smashed face or rape with a knife you know just like horrible horrible stuff <laughs> and um yeah, and it's partly out of acceptance, I guess. It's partly out of, yeah, this stuff exists. It's not going to not exist because you're not listening to songs about it or reading books about it. It's always going to be there. And it's not like you can listen to a bunch of Cannibal Corpse songs and then when one of your friends and family dies, you'll feel slightly better for having listened to None More Vile or something. And, um, but accepting it will, it does something. It's, it's very difficult to, to, to qualify what that something is. It's the way that I can tend to talk about it is for anyone that's experienced like profound grief. Um, and so th this is like grief beyond trauma. So there's a traumatic event, like you lose a loved one, something like that. Or something very terrible happens to you or someone you care about. These are very real events. They're very fucking difficult to process. They're very fucking difficult to make sense of in any real emotional way. Um, but the thing that I'm talking about is sort of the grief that comes after. The, like, how do you exist in a world where this thing has happened? How do you go about your day-to-day -day life knowing in the back of your head that your dad is gone and won't ever come back and that all the people you're looking at in the grocery store don't and will never know this person that was so meaningful, like that kind of thing. This, So it's like it's a post-traumatic cloud that covers the world after these things. And that kind of acceptance helps diminish that, at least from my experience. Um, and that kind of empathetic understanding helps reduce that i mean you even see this prevalent in notions of like what is restorative and rehabilitative justice specifically rejecting the notion that like i can't punish you so much that a crime gets undone that doesn't actually yeah. happen um no matter how much someone has hurt you or hurt someone that you care about nothing you do against them will undo this thing so the psychopathic right-wing mentality when it comes to something like questions of forgiveness or questions of rehabilitation or restoration are just 
I'm going to beat the living fucking shit out of you and then whatever. Meanwhile, if you're a decent person, you're tasked to ask different kinds of questions about like in the wake in the wake of the reality that you can't undo what has just happened. How do we get to a place of justice? And so that's the kind of that's also the kind of headspace that this novel lives in, that it's like he he even affirms it in the prose constantly that no amount of interpretation or reinterpretation will bring the boys back. So he further complicates the issue of the white witch, which is a very strong mirror to the, to the devil house events of nothing will bring the boys back who got killed, but also this woman was put in the gas chamber for their, for their death. So no amount of everyone involved died. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and this, the, the mirror of this within the devil house mystery is it becomes increasingly ambiguous. The more he looks into it, um, if anyone died, if so, how many people, what were the motivations did like were what specific people were involved? Like it gets murkier and stranger the more he looks into it, not in like a surrealistic way, but just his in ability to part does in real life. Yeah. Like, um, but when so you dig for helps. like real specific evidence, it ever it just slips away. Hmm. So so the devil house event so to lay it all down for everyone is there was a uh, a shop or store in a, a californian town um it started out as like a you know much like um molten phosphate things then it became a newspaper stand then some guy bought it and turned it into like a porno shop there were like a few comic books and uh, like uh, booths to jack off in and so on and not various erotic novelties um there was a kid who worked there when it was the news a newsstand, and he kept working there, kind of like cleaning up. Um, when it was a pawn shop, then that closed down, and the uh, owner of the store just left one day, left all the stock behind. And this kid, um, I've forgotten his name, um, Derek, was it? I think so. Was it Derek? Yeah, I'm going to call him Derek. But... Uh, this kid, uh, Derek, um, just I, he invites his friends, his best friend Alex, who's um, I don't want to be like one of those representation matters people, but um, was probably like a, the best representation of someone with ADHD in any fiction ever, um, especially because they don't actually use the term ADHD, but it's really obvious if you know what you're looking for. But um, so his friend, uh, oh, it's not Alex, is it? Alex was the homeless kid. Um, I'm mixing up uh, character names. Um, so, yeah, there's... One, one I'll be friend... honest, most of the time when I'm reading books, their names become, like, Guy and... Yeah. Guy! Like, I, I, know, I know a ton about their backstories and lives, I just don't ever remember names, so... Same. <laughs> there's, there's, some more, there's some more ADHD representation for everyone there. Um, yeah, Derek was the... Uh, First name. Um, there's a female friend called Angela. Uh, Seth is the guy with ADHD. Uh, so yeah, there are a bunch of there are a bunch of kids. You, you know the type from a, any other John Darnell song. Uh, they're kind of losers. They like Dungeon Dragons and uh, stuff, stuff, and they start decorating the Devil House um, in the way like I and probably Langdon and probably everyone listening to this <laughs> are like 
drew in the margins of their uh, notebooks at school. Like I, I've filled up whole notebooks with like just random crap. I, and Same. I'm, I'm terrible artist. My friend um, John, who's uh, now has a PhD in uh, music studies, uh, he is a, was a brilliant artist. At notebooks at school. Me, he, me and him were basically like Derek and Seth. We, um, I was Seth, obviously, and yeah, it, like most people who grew up in a small town will know these kids or will have been these kids and given the opportunity would have uh, decorated a porn store with uh, random crap and like spooky devil stuff and pentagrams even though you're as much a satanist as I am a Hindu or <laughs> no it's it's not as, yeah it, but um, but then a murder occurs in the store a, 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 possibly a, um, a real estate agent and someone who is going to buy the store is are maybe killed with a sword. <laughs> and could be. We don't know. Um, and, um, yeah, and it obviously becomes a whole thing of the town, and it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, like, I, I'm kind of hedging my bets on what I'm saying here, because it's all... Um, I'm not going to say it's like postmodern or anything. It's not. He's not doing literary backflips to impress us with his wit. Yeah, but it's. He's definitely there's, there's more a. a li- to it. Yeah, he's definitely much more of a literary author. Um, which which is not a shock to anyone who's either listened to his music or like read any one of his other books. Um, than he is like a pure genre guy. So anyone oh, walking yeah. in expecting like, oh, at this point I'm going to get the the like the really gruesome. It it just doesn't happen. He he keeps it within this literary space. So like, I keep thinking about how the most gruesome thing in any of his books happens in Wolf and White Van, where the main character, and this becomes clear very early in the book, at one point shoots himself in the head with a shotgun, but lives, mm. um, and is yeah. just mutilated by it. Um, but like. That's it. That's the that's the most gruesome thing. And the, his other books are much more horror based or play with images of horror a lot more directly. But it, yeah, like you were saying, like you you don't really get a salacious murder and the way that he messes with the pursuit of evidence and the pursuit of like, did anyone actually die if they died? Were they murdered? If that like if they were murdered, did someone murder them? And is like. Yeah, it, it it fits. It's not quite as extreme as, say, like the New York trilogy by Paul Astor, where like those are ex- extremely postmodern approaches to like what is a detective novel. But he's not far afield, at least mentally, in terms of like the it, it ties into what we were saying b- before. This isn't a book that is a true crime book. And it it's about true crime in an angle that you may not have expected. Yeah, it's like I say. If you go in looking for a detective story or a ghost story, which, you, given the front cover, you could be forgiven for thinking this is going to be a spooky ghost story. I was um, admittedly a little bit bummed when I got like I think it was two thirds of the way through, and I was like, "Wow, there are going to be no ghosts in this at all." Damn, not a single <laughs> skeleton will jump out and shout "boo." <laughs> there are no Frankenstein's, no Dracula's. Um, zero out of ten, terrible book. Um, <laughs> But let's let's do some music. 
do a song right now. Um, should we go with who do who do you want to go with first? Uh, they're, they're both awesome. They are both um, awesome. Should we do Royal Tomasi first? I I feel both incredible bands. I feel like this particular Celeste album is just that tiny bit more awesome, so we'll put it at the end. Um, So, yeah, Royal Tomasi are one of the incredible number of really brilliant British metal acts right now, um, half of whom we've had on the show at some point. (laughs) Um, Venom Prison, Ithaca, um, Pupil Slicer, Valbard, like a billion. Uh, there are a lot of them. Royal Tomasi are one of the kind of big, bigger ones. Uh, so they're um, difficult to um, put into a bracket. It's obviously it's not post-metal in the way like, say, Isis was. Um, it's not kind of avant sludge like Neurosis, Neurosis or someone. Um, yeah, it, it's very big sounding, very epic. Um, very emotional. Um, there's like, yeah. there's a huge amount of noise rock in here, but it doesn't, it's not as like, um, well, small and nervy and punky yeah. as like Jesus Lizard or something. It feels as big as heavy metal, but it's very, yeah, yeah it's like there's noise rock and post hardcore. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's kind of the same for a lot of these bands that we're talking about. Like, it's hard, really hard to put a lot of them into, a, into any sort of bracket. Um, yeah, because like people slice, for example, we don't. They kind of sound like Dillinger Escape Plan, but also Grindcore, but also some other stuff. And Venom Prism's new one, I, the first few albums were yes, this is death metal done incredibly well. Um, on the new one, they really expand what they're doing a lot. Um, yeah. Uh, so fun fact, I actually they expanded it. This I never thought I'd say this too much, and I don't like the new one that much. Ooh, yeah. Which, I mean, from what I've seen, so it's one of those classic things where it's like, I I can't help but respect them because they've they've blown out the the number of things that they can do way beyond what I thought they'd ever be able to reach. So for me, it's just that it's not resonating or clicking yet. But like the fact that, like you were saying, they went from like we are a death metal band to like. They have everything from like prog metal to new metal to to death metal to there's some grind. They're like just yeah, and Rollo Tomasi's like that, but like a bit uh a bit punkier, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But, um, yeah, and and th- basically all of these bands have all released an album in the last week or so. Um, I don't know if they're coordinating something, but yeah. We've had Venom Prism, Ithaca, and Pupil Slicer, and now Royal Tomasi all in the same like two week span. Been very good time to be British, except for like everything else, and you know, every, <laughs> like, literally every other aspect of being British has been just awful. Especially in the last two weeks, it's just been shit. I uh, um, so... yeah, I loved hearing about how Keir Starmer managed to piss off the largest collection of unions in Britain. Uh... Yeah, he'll he'll do that. Yep, he's, on he's, purpose. He sucks. <laughs> just really sucks at the moment, and and has always done. I I um, I like the only time I've ever been rude to someone like <laughs> like, <laughs> like um like was, deliberately like I know I'm about to be rude and I don't give a fuck. <laughs> yeah, it was um, a couple of weeks ago when a Labour um I guess member uh, came to my door, 
and I had to tell them like, uh, yeah, I'm. I was actually a member of the Labour Party at one point. Um, uh-huh. Even knocked on doors for uh, Jeremy Corbyn a few years ago, and um, you know what happened then? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know the next part of this story? <laughs> you, know, you, know, you see where I might be going with this. <laughs> they notice that my like, my fingernails are clutched into my uh, hands so much the blood is dripping on the carpet. And but uh, yeah, I, I'm sorry to that poor kid, but. Um, yeah, I was quite rude to uh, a Labour Party <laughs> member the other day. But anyway, here's Rolla Tabasi.
That was Rolla Tomasi. Um, the song was cloaked off uh, the album Where Myth Becomes Memory. A nice cover. Yeah. Um, well, a nice cover. Graphic design is also on, on point for many of the great uh, current wave of British metal bands at the moment. Did you call them labor British metal bands? A current current wave of. Oh, I was like, yeah. The, yeah no, I don't know if they're uh, labor members. I probably, I hope not at, at this point. Call them. Years, that'd be fine. Call them Starmer Core. <laughs> <laughs> hey, at least the Queen's dead, though, right? Probably. Or they're in some sort of um, state beyond death where uh, she's attaining a new form. <laughs> she's um, mutating yeah she um someone like literally said that uh like one of her like uh, spokespeople said that um she's undergoing a transition at the moment i i think something even more like lovecraftian they said and it was like dude do you hear the words you're saying you're like you're like saying she's transcending to become an elder thing at the moment <laughs> Hey, we, we, we did a whole we did actually a whole series on what how they make the uh the royal family transition into Lovecraftian things, if you remember. Oh yeah, we did, yeah. Yeah. That's, um, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, a lot of stuff about Princess Diana in there. Also, how foretelling that we both fucking called uh and that's a rude way to put it, but the, so so like going back to the stuff about the invisibles, the fact that Grant Morrison did actually come out as non binary does sort of match uh what our analytic of of that stuff was in the invisibles which i found you know pleasing. I, I, and i think it really goes to show that i can actually tell people uh what their gender identity is yeah i should be able to do that i should have a badge Gareth so makes that sort of special hat. yeah make the um, badge in the shape of a gun uh, like a gender <laughs> gun and you just point yeah. it at people <laughs> uh, i'll have like a i'll be dressed as like a kind of like cupid but um, I'll have a gun. It'll be pink. Uh, no, half half blue, half pink. It's because gender. And I'll just like <laughs> run around town um, until I'm arrested or killed. And um, anyway, speaking of being arrested or killed, Devil House, though. Um, yeah, I, like, I, like I said earlier, I, I like that he's going back to the satanic panic stuff that he kind of hit on in Wolf of um, I was going to say Wolf of Wall Street. It's <laughs> not, not the, the thing he did. He did John Darnielle's Wolf of Wall Street would be way more tragic. Oh yeah, it probably have the same amount of divorce in it, but um, probably less cocaine. Um, probably a, a, a lot less people misinterpreted it as a guide to what you should do. Um, cocaine parentheses sad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's lots of stimulants in John Darnell songs. It's not cocaine. No, no, no protagonist in a John Darnell song can afford it. But, I was about um, to say, like, can you imagine them having coke money? These songs would be so different. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Can you imagine uh, John Darnell doing yacht rock, <laughs> the best ever death metal band out of San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> John Darnell, John Darnell, if you're listening to this, please cover Kenny Loggins. Mm, yeah, get get a saxophonist, get a, a white, um, a really large white uh, blazer. 
you know what? Like, don't think about Taylor in just like a huge white blazer. Some some of his more recent records have aired at least closer to Yacht Rock, like uh, Keep It Dark and uh, In League with Dragons. Yeah, he, I, um, I hope he doesn't listen to this. I, I <laughs> liked his last few records. Um, I've been they've been hit or miss for me. I was I was wondering whether I should bring that up as well. Like I wasn't too hot on goths. Then I really mm. liked in League with Dragons. Then uh, like, like getting into champ. knives. I was like, uh, and then, you know, keep it dark. I was like, like that one a lot. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's definitely songs on there that are still so great. I just is uh, he's, he's kind of um, setting us up for a return to um, Guitar in the uh, boombox, maybe. I mean, no, he he well, he, he did a record like that recently, actually. Songs oh yeah, he did for that, Pierre um, something. Was Chauvin or something? Yeah, yeah. yeah I actually listened to that, but it's really really good. I mean, it sounds ex- it's exactly like what what you just said. It sounds like um, uh, his peak like <coughs> alpha couple boombox records. Hmm. Was it? I, I thought it was just like. Um, re-recordings of old songs and rarities and stuff. I didn't know it was like an album album. Uh, it is. It's so it's considered an album, but his. Uh, I mean, this is talking from one Big Mountain Goats fan to another. The number of rarities and unrecorded songs or unreleased recorded songs that he has is like enough for a bunch of different records. So, oh yeah, like one of my favorite Mountain Goats songs has never been released. And um, yeah, if, if anyone gets a chance to check out a uh, forty. Um, or, no, it's called You Were Cool. Um, it's really, it's one of, it's an amazing song up there with any anything he's put on a record. But uh, yeah, you just like record it one day in 2010 and just like you can find it on YouTube if you particularly need to hear it. But it's amazing. Um, anyway, what's that? Yeah, I was, but it, it's so, like, let's say I've been thinking about the Satanic Panic quite a lot lately. Because it is so insane that during our lifetimes, like when we were babies um, and toddlers, like half the way around the world for me, fairly close to you, there was like a wit- there was like real people who were still around were accusing their neighbors and their um, nursery uh, teachers and of being like literally satan satanists who would literally talk to the literal satan who would like tell them to do stuff there was a whole industry of people on the like christian speaker circuit who claimed to be ex-satanists yeah i mean that's that's when huge things when i came up as a christian so i've talked about this a little bit i when i was younger i used to be like very very christian and it was very traumatic for me to lose my faith because when you think God is real and you know that you don't love God anymore, your thought isn't, okay, that's fine. Your thought is, I am going to be relinquished to hell when I die. Um, and when you think hell is real, that's terrifying. But, yeah, no, I grew up in the midst of the tail end of that stuff. And even as you're witnessing things like the moral majority, um, at, per its name, is losing steam or things like the satanic panic are losing their steam on the macro scale like they aren't making it to the front of tabloids or things anymore mm-hmm. they yeah, still in smaller towns 
yeah, it's like the the their presence in smaller towns and in semi rural and rural areas never really went away. It just sort of became this permanent stronghold. It's sort of like we've talked about this a lot before, um, but like the rise of someone like Trump in America, you can see the seeds of it going back decades and decades and decades. Like it's not a new thing; it's an eruption of a very old thing. Even mm-hmm. the Satanic Panic itself is not the beginning of that thing. It's another instance That's and eruption of the yeah. same. But like, yeah, we have a series of documentaries called Paradise Lost about literally a bunch of teens that were accused of committing like a hyperbolically violent and insane satanic murder in the woods. And they were only exonerated like recently. Mm, It was like in the late 2010s that they were finally exonerated, but they... Uh, were tried as adults even though they were like 16 or something like that in like the early the 90s was like 14 wasn't he um, yeah i know uh, uh damien eckhart one of the main guys on there um he's an interesting chap he i want to i want to go like on the show because he is a very fascinating dude um, yeah he's like i mean even if he was just like one one of the west memphis three like he's already got an amazing life story already but then he became a magician like and i don't mean like rabbits out of hats i mean like you know pentagrams talks to angels magician magician he's and he was on that um oh was that the the midnight that that show on netflix uh animated show you've mentioned it to me you've definitely seen oh yeah oh shit fuck he was on that yeah i didn't realize that he was one of the speakers let me yeah, um, you know. Oh my the, God, um, he's the guy who talks about Aleister Crowley on that. Fucking yeah, of course he is. Who else? <laughs> yeah, who else? Shit. I'm yeah, just... he's um, yeah, he's the guy in the prison. And um, um yeah, that that's you... that's Damien Eckhart. Uh, yeah, it's um, yeah, I, I'll, I'll, it, yeah. Let's keep talking. I'll find the name of of the show. <laughs> like a midnight something. Midnight Gospel. Midnight Gospel. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah, he was in that. That was him. So, so it's very, and it's very strange, especially to think about the Satanic Panic now, especially through the lens of like we see in certain spaces, especially online. This is an, again a complaint about one of the ills of being too online, and a plea to some of the people listening to go outside. Don't stop listening. Go outside, but keep listening, keep That's downloading, nice. keep downloading, but listen uh, actually, and go outside. If, you, if they've listened to this much already, we've already kind of captured their uh, imprint, so they can stop listening really any time. They could have stopped listening like 15 minutes ago already. We'd still, we'll still get the hit. But, um, so, like, you see this kind of thing present sometimes in, like, queer online space or, like, fan fiction online space or literary online space or... Um, where it's it's not the the nature of the witch hunt isn't always exactly the same and it's built around similar to things like the satanic panic where um we get analytics of them post facto that seem to indicate that it's that kind of thing emerges from radiating tension that's sublimated within a society like you know that the way that the world around you is structured is fundamentally fucked up and is going to lead to an explosion of tension at some point. And because you can't see a real explosion around you, you develop these more and more 
abstracted nihilistic fantasy scenarios something like QAnon, it can be viewed as like a modern satanic panic and in a certain way oh yeah 100 this i mean yeah literally is they are doing the exact same tropes that they always have been back to ancient rome um, yeah had the same tropes as QAnon. But like we have, you can blow it out that big, but you can also have these much smaller versions where it's things like a social group or a group of friends falls into dissolution because people start accusing one of them of like, you did this really fucked up thing. And they're like, I literally didn't. And they're like, you don't have proof of it, which means you can't prove that you didn't do it. And then everyone's like, they absolutely did it. And later you find out like, no, they like we've all got, if you get to a certain point in adulthood, especially if you're on the internet, you'll have had that happen of like, this circle doesn't talk to each other over shit that in retrospect never even happened. Um, But everyone was... So like, we see this large and small. Um, The satanic panic, at least within American consciousness, just takes on a, a particular pitch to it. And is far enough removed now. Like, if you made this about QAnon, it would take on a kind of almost saccharine or dismissive kind of yeah. color to it. Yeah, I'm very glad it wasn't set in the modern day. <laughs> Plus, given, I mean, that. given his personal background, a lot of a lot of his stuff, this may shock everyone listening, obviously, is, is somewhat uh, autobiographical. I know, quell surprise. Um, so the fact that he would have something set within the satanic panic and people affected and colored by that um, makes much more sense. Yeah, it was. He's a guy who's into Dungeon Dragons and heavy metal in the eighties. Like even I like remember being given pamphlets about how Dungeon Dragons was going to um, lead me to Satan. But um, you know about med beds? Med beds? Med beds, as in medical beds. Oh, yeah. Come on. No, I didn't. I didn't mean like the beds they have in hospitals, but med beds. Then no, no, I thought you meant the weird, like, robot beds that they have in hospitals. No, um, no. Have you seen the film uh, Elysium? Uh, Yes. Yeah. Do you remember how there was a bed and at the start of Elysium, that little girl goes in it and, like, scans her and says, okay, she's got a broken leg or whatever, and then it instantly heals her. You know that? This has been in, like, and, like, back to tanks in Star Wars, and this is... yeah. Like, it's like a, a face standard sci-fi trope. It's like, loads of this. Um, Star Trek has them, etc. So QAnon uh, believes those are real, right? And <laughs> obviously the government has been keeping medbeds from us. And and if you, like, do a, a Twitter or, like, Telegram, Telegram or something search for medbeds, you'll find tons and tons of talking about this. Um, because, yeah, they believe that there are medical technologies that haven't been given to the public yet and that when the the storm or whenever this great event happens then we will get the med beds and all these americans who like most of QAnon people are older people they've probably got health problems uh, which in america is like a financial death sentence uh, yeah. no pun intended for also the title of the show. Um, but um <laughs> financial yeah. death sentence, link here. <laughs> yeah. Link in bio. Um yeah, it, it's like a horrible thing to be sick in America. I think that's fairly fair to say. And their reaction to this is it's like you said, they they don't see a way out. They don't see things like 
Medicare for All or like an American National Health Service, they see sci-fi shit. Someone watched Elysium and thought that would be a cool thing if that happened. Therefore, I'm going to post about it on a Telegram channel. And now people literally believe it's true. And and instead of like voting for someone who wants Medicare for All, they see, well, there's no point doing that. Why have Medicare for All when everyone's just going to have a med bed? You just go into into your med bed. It doesn't matter if you've got cancer or gunshot wound to the face. You go in your med bed, you're fine. So there's no real reason to organize for Medicare for All or even make things very slightly better because you've got a med bed. It's coming any second now. And, um, yeah, that's... Like you said, the the displacement of anything real because people are so bored and are so tired of everything in this in all of our societies that it's easy to believe that and and the left does it too. Like, yeah, and we, we don't unfortunately... have our, we don't have med beds, but we after the revolution, you know, we we got to pick our um, got to pick what our jobs are going to be on the commune that that thread go that. Someone asked that on left Twitter every few months, and everyone and it says, always oh. elicits some. The, the answer to it that winds up becoming controversial is always some legitimately insane thing that you never would have seen coming, like someone being like, "Well, obviously, it's going to be racially segregated," and you're like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> I will be. I will have the head calipers. I will go measuring people's head <laughs> to make sure they're in the right uh, commune. If people only have their uh, pure phenotype. Yeah, it's like we wind up seeing, obviously, in certain liberal spaces, something like Russiagate um, was, again, the same kind of immaterial mass psychosis, which not not saying that necessarily to attack the people who fall into it, because this is, again, sort of the empathetic extension is that uh, this ultimately is at the end of the day why all of us on the show are Marxists is we're presented a world where we don't have all the information about why the world looks the way that it does or moves the way that it does. And all it takes is one moment of weakness and one bit of a bad faith explanation from someone to fill obvious gaps that we all see and all have anxiety about all the time. All it takes is that one time to go, okay, I guess that makes sense. And now you can be wrapped up in into these things. Um, you even see that with people who, this is again, sort of uh, a high horse that I've gotten on recently, admittedly, but uh, people who hate the Marvel movies for the wrong reasons, like they develop these like insane conspiratorial things when it's like, no, the the capitalist industry of producing blockbuster films has wanted a Marvel cinematic universe type thing forever, literally since the 1920s. Like you don't get movie productions of the size and scale of the golden era of Hollywood if they're not trying to get that. Like, how many people legitimately do you think love Gone with the Wind that fucking much that when adjusted for inflation, it's still the highest grossing film of all time? Um, a film whose entire thesis can be summarized as slavery was pretty cool. Um, so, you know, like we see these emerge all all the time and you need on some level, even though it can be very hard to be sympathetic to because it, it's the same thing of like, when someone gets manipulated, you don't get mad at them for having been manipulated. That's fucked up on some level. 
Um, you may be unhappy with things they've done because of that. And it may be frustrating and heartbreaking and all that kind of thing. But you ultimately need to get mad at the things that have manipulated them, not... Yeah, like the two kids in the, in the White Witch story. Like, you can be mad at both. You can be mad at them for what they did. You can be mad at her for what she did. Like, she could have um, stabbed them a lot less. She could have um, called the police afterwards instead of trying to bury their bodies. Uh, but, and you could be mad at the one kid who was obviously more, who suggested the idea of let's go to our teacher's house and steal all this stuff. You could be mad at his dad for being an asshole to him the whole time and kind of leading him to that point where he wants to get away so bad. You could be mad at whoever made his dad such an asshole. You could be, you know, you could, and then you could be mad at capitalism for making everyone an asshole all the time. And yeah, and that's kind of what John Darnell is saying. You've you kind of got to keep, you either got to keep expanding your empathy out to everything in the whole world uh, just to explain what, like, is in the big picture of things, a very minor event. Two, de two deaths or three if you count the execution as well. Or you can kind of just lean into the fact that it's all a big story anyway. And I'll say, I'll try and do this without spoilers. That's kind of the, um, the ending of the book is just, yeah, it's just a story. It's whatever you're going to put in a book is just going to be a story at the end of the day. And you're never going to get the full picture. You, you know that, and you just kind of got to accept that as well. Um, it reminded me a lot of uh, like the better things about um, like the works of Ishiguro. Uh, which obviously, my brain fixates on him because I've read all of his books. Um, but yeah, that that sentiment of uh, both that sentiment of release um, and specifically releasing yourself from the idea that you can contain perfect knowledge or that the pursuit of perfect knowledge will actually pay out. Um, and then again, the thing that we we're uh, talking about that, like the compassion, if it makes you feel, if it makes you feel good and comforted immediately is bad compassion, good compassion almost forces you to confront and live more directly with far deeper kinds of tragedy such that you don't feel anger anymore you feel pain mm. which is a weird yeah. thing to frame as positive but it does I, it, it, this, again speaking from a marxist that's the thing that sort of sits in my head about politics is that like you want the liberation of everyone because you see, even reactionary thought doesn't come necessarily from this person was born evil. It's this person was in profound pain and were taken advantage of by a variety of systems that seek to manipulate and destroy them. Hmm, yeah, they, they, they're sick and they want their med beds. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and unfortunately they can't get it. And then we end up with what's happening in Canada right now. Um, yeah, we. <clears throat> yeah, and yeah, going back to uh, Walter Benjamin. Uh, I never say his name. Benjamin, Benjamin, Walter Benjamin. Um, I was going to say, I thought it was just Benjamin, but I don't like. I could I... every every time I hear someone say it, it's said in like in, in, in like the German <laughs> way. 
which are be, like being uh, being in being, how do you do it? Ben, ben, Walter Walter Benjamin. Um, All right, he's American now. It's Walter Benjamin. Yeah, <laughs> I've added an R to it. Walt B. <laughs> um, Wally B. Um, it's like insane. Yeah, the the like profound sadness of having a Marxist, uh, socialist, any kind of left um, outlook, even the profound sadness of having any kind of politics. Because, yeah, like you say, it, it all comes back to kind of a very similar place, even fascists. Yeah. Even crazies like in QAnon, kind of, kind of all want the same thing. Um, I, I was reading um, Ernst Bloch, who's a contemporary of uh, Benjamin, Benjamin's. He wrote a very, very big, um, I think it's a trilogy of books on utopian thinking. And how utopian thought is present everywhere. It's way more common than you, you think. You'd think it was in utopia, so um, Thomas More's, your um, the dispossessed, etc. But um, he traces it everywhere. It's in like um, grim fairy tales. It's um, people always putting these little snippets of utopian thinking into stuff, and. QAnon do it too, with their, with their med beds and their the storm and how everyone's debts are going to be um, released and even fascists have their utopias. And I mean, hell, um, we struggle with it. One of the first works that Engels wrote was Utopian versus Scientific Socialism. And it's a specter that still hasn't left uh, even Marxist space, like, not e like broad leftist space we run into a lot, specifically from certain kinds of anarchists or people who just describe as like a leftist or a socialist as they'll talk in utopian terms, even though it's like, that's history will not give us a utopia. History will give us new different struggles that hopefully are better and less intense, but it won't yeah. be. Um, but yeah, even within Marxism, you sometimes deal with people where, where you go like, all right, let's have a critical discussion about like the life and po the policies and history of someone like Stalin or Mao. And they go, it was all great. And you're like, well, it wasn't all great. There were a lot of good things, and there are a lot of things that we can... They're like, no, it's all great. And you're like, it wasn't all great. What are you stupid? <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah, North Korea is, is perfect. Uh, anyone who disagrees gets the wall. Like, and, I'm not um, trying to say it shouldn't exist. I'm saying, can we produce fungible criticisms to make the next revolution even stronger? And they go, no. And you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> like... <laughs> Yeah, it's um, yeah, we like I say, kind of all have a rough idea of these things, and it motivates us, even though it probably shouldn't. Like Ernst Bloch is a lot um kinder to the idea of utopian thinking than than Engels was. Um, he, he thinks it's a very necessary, very good thing, and and, and a lot of other people in the um kind of Frankfurt School had a kind of similar thing. We kind of thinking about those guys as a bunch of like, well, all like Adorno, just kind of miserable <laughs> and, um, you know, just sit in his room listening to like horrible atonal records. Called jazz music, white people music. <laughs> Perfect criticism. <laughs> he no, no, said jazz people. was fascist and white people music, <laughs> which is... <laughs> Just the no. best criticism of anything. Just zero <laughs> notes, perfect. Ten out of ten. Right? 
<laughs> like uh, I'm, I had, yeah, I had some thoughts, and then I got to that point, and I realized that I'm the student, and you're the master. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it like, uh, um, Eric from has a lot of very utopian thinking. Obviously, on block has a lot of stuff. It's, it's not yeah, even Adorno himself. People did in interviews say like, okay, you're Marxist. What, what do you want? What is your ideal life? going to be like after the rev um i think he said something along on the lines of like i, I just want to relax like <laughs> my my idea is just just to breathe uh, yeah his exact words were to breathe a sigh of relief and i've you can read it on many levels of like you know personally like it would be nice to not have to work as much and not have to suffer various oppressions in our lives and so on and also, like on a big historical level, where humanity can say, like, okay, yes, we're gonna, you know, dialectics still kicking around. We're still gonna have different struggles, but we're not gonna like have a nuclear war, or yeah, um, you know, we're not gonna have slavery anymore. We're not gonna have like Amazon making people piss in bottles. Um, that's they want to. That's that's their thing. Um, <laughs> Post revolution, we're actually all gonna piss in bottles on the factory floor, but that's because that's what we're into. <laughs> yeah, that's my my spot in the in the in the commune is well, what what happens with the piss bottles, and um, I'm not gonna tell anyone what I'm gonna do with them, but um, we'll see. We'll see. And sort of, um, it's it's at that point that you see kind of the internalization of certain realities of postmodern. Um, not just literary, but philosophical thought um, into Darnell's stuff of like questions of hermeneutics and um, epistemology. And like, I, I, you can get fancy with it, but the question of how can you know, how can you be certain that you know, um, is a narrativization of a truth the same thing as the truth, even if it contains only the information that you know is true? Is the moment you turn it into a narrative, does that transform it compared to it being barefoot? Like he, yeah, and he does the satisfying literary thing of not answering that. He doesn't like play it down to you or like thumb, like thunk you on the nose like a like an annoying school teacher. He just wants you to sit with the problem. Yeah. Also to break your heart. He wants to break your heart, <laughs> and he does. <laughs> he, he always always. I was telling Gareth before this, I was revisiting bits of the book to prep for recording this because uh, I finished reading it like a week ago. Um, and I was like, how come rereading parts is also making me cry? This is fucked up. <laughs> yeah, there are a bunch of Mountain Goat songs I can't listen to because I will cry at them. It's like, yep, <laughs> it doesn't matter what's happening. I will be crying at this song. The, the Broom People, there's a specific um, point in that song uh, where he says... Um, in the long dark tresses, uh, tresses of your hair, I'm a babbling brook. And every time it, when it gets a brook, I'm like, Bwah! just my tear ducts just go. It's like I've, I've been Pavlovian conditioned to always cry at that exact point. I have no idea why. I don't, don't even know why I started doing that. But whenever I get there, even thinking about it now, I'm kind of getting misty. But uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to talk about mine that get me all all fucked up but yeah no he's got a couple they're mostly on um uh, visions of a life to come or whatever the 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 bible verse one hmm. jesus god it fucks me up <laughs> yeah, yeah and his books do too his yeah he's he's managed to be um 
what was it someone called him uh, america's greatest non-hip-hop um uh songwriter and also one of its greatest novelists like how good is this guy at being awesome he's just yeah. so good at being great at stuff he's tremendously bad at taking a compliment like he gets very visibly uncomfortable if you tell him like you're fucking great but like <laughs> john you gotta get used to it if be worse then like <laughs> yeah just write a bad book if um, you don't want me to compliment you you gotta be worse at your job man what are we supposed to do how are we supposed like we're talking before we've both read his three um main novels so to speak like and we both want to go back and read the 33 and a third that would be an interesting episode to do at some point as well but like dog these are all like like 10 out of 10 like fuck me up inside books like you gotta you gotta miss for me to tell you that you missed yeah he's just three out of three so far who's gonna tell michael jordan like fucking stupid dunk idiot like that's dumb (laughs) Yeah, um, like I said, we, we we cannot be possibly be. I mean, I feel like if he wrote a bad book, I could say that. Like, I'm not such a super fan that everything he ever touches is perfect. Like, there are some some songs I, I I'm not particularly fond of. Um, but yeah, so far his record of novels has just been perfect. Just absolutely ten out of ten, every single one of them. Um, if he makes a bad one, I'll say it. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a fanboy. I will, you know, I'll, I'll say that. But so far, he hasn't. Every one of them has been absolutely some of the top fiction of the 21st century so far. Um, and yeah, absolute. Um, this one, I, I, like, I can't, I can't pick a favorite. Um, maybe even this one. Who yeah. Knows? Um, For me, it's either this one or Wolf and White Van. Universal Harvester, I liked quite a bit, but didn't hit the same. This comes the closest to really twisting the knife in my heart in a productive way, the way that Wolf and White Van did. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, like, always read them basically when they come out. So it's been a while since I read Wolf and White Van and Universal Harvester. So... Maybe if I read them all in a week, I'd be <laughs> a favorite, but... Read them all in a week and managed miraculously to survive. <laughs> I, I, I think it's, a, it's a, like beautiful sadness. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't feel bad. His songs have never felt bad. Like that, um, that bit in the broom people, I always associate that bit with my wife. Even though she doesn't really have dark hair. Her hair's purple. Um, but um, yeah, I always think about her when I think about that. So oh, that's and, really sweet. Yeah, I know it's nice to me. Um, yeah, no, and, and, and I know what you mean. It's like there's a produ- like the songs on that record of his. That's like the one that's dearest to me. Remind me of the parts about my former religious faith that I still find the most beautiful and endearing that I don't really have direct access to anymore since I lost my. Faith. So like that kind of like complicated productive emotionalism rather than like mm. i am going to kill myself kind of you know yeah i don't i don't think he's ever made someone feel worse by making them sad which is a weird thing to yeah because sadness is supposed to be a minus but yeah it's uh 
one of the things that like a really good songwriter and novelist can do is really make you sad and that's a great great thing so yeah people at home please go out and read this buy it from a, a nice independent bookstore uh listen to his music i, I tried listening to mountain goats while reading this and that didn't really work for some reason maybe maybe just more adhd brain and i should only listen to like a minimal techno when reading but um it's uh yeah a brilliant book yeah so go listen to it please but um speaking of stuff that's brilliant let's uh let's end with that celeste uh album because you wrote a good thing on it in um treble yeah a good long meaty review of it is in treble um I've heard of these guys for years. I never actually sat down and really gave them a listen to until I read your thing. And then I was like, okay, you got to check this out. I was like, shit. This yeah, is, like, yeah. I'd, I'd heard like a couple of records and I I'd remembered that I liked them, but I, I don't remember like spending a huge amount of time with them. Like a classic thing where you're like, oh, it's pretty good. And I imagine someone's going to fall in love with this, but not me. Um, and then just... I happened to sign up for a review of, of the newest one. And you know, you're thinking like, okay, I'm going to, you know, do my work and, you know, I'm going to treat this professionally. All this, you know, I've been writing about music for, for years now. So it's like, okay, I'm going to, and then, yeah, I'm just fucking crying at my desk, listening to it. <laughs> like, uh, like within the first time that I put it on, I'm just like sitting there like weepy at the desk and had to sort of reckon with what was going on in the record that like, cut me to the core that that quickly um obviously i mean i write about it in the review um like in in short like what is different about this one why does it get why does it get you crying so it's it's like that magic thing that speaking to extreme metal listening audiences it's that magic thing about why we love the band isis but many other post-metal bands can leave us cold or why like cult of luna's return has been so lauded but we don't see too many other traditional post-metal bands emerging in that wake, is it's something about, and they very much draw from that kind of post-metal. As much as you'll hear people talk about them as a black metal band or black gays band, or I hear them more in the mode of like Cult of Luna or Isis. Mm. Oh yeah, 100%. But it's, there's an alchemy to it. That's like when Neurosis hits those same notes, you feel like your chest is going to like cave in and you're going to start sobbing when Yob is doing their approach to post metal. That's much more doomy, obviously, but isn't a million miles from neurosis. Same thing. But then you hear, I don't want to name names because that's rude, but there were a bunch of other post metal bands and you'd hear them. You'd be like, you're just playing a slow kind of mathy repetitive riff. So it's, it's hard slower. It, it's hard to, it's hard to say exactly what the difference is without using terms like alchemy and magic, but it's like, it's this precise balance of elements. It's the way that like, it's the difference between a raw hardcore vocal over top of this kind of music and a hardcore vocal that clearly is coming from the heart. Hmm. It, it, it's sort of like the difference. And we can even get this back all the way back to like good emotional hardcore like good early emo and bad early emo is one the guy is screaming you don't know what he's saying but you're crying and the other one 
he's screaming and you go, these guys sound like dog shit. Like mm-hmm. both of them objectively sound kind of similar, but there's just this alignment of elements. And on this record, they seem to have finally, it helps that they got a bigger um, production budget. So they were able to do these like little fine grain touches across the entire sound palette of the album that made it work a lot better. Um, it also helps that they've, they clearly spend a lot more time on these songs, it seems like, like in the wake of COVID. But I don't know. This one just it's fucking incredible. Like it, it, it just floored me. Yeah, so we're going to play one of the songs off that album. Um, do you have any preferences? Any preferences? Uh, not, not particularly, and I can't pronounce um, any of the song titles because they're all in French. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. It's probably not even pronounced Celeste. It's probably like a, El, you know how Alceste, El, Alcey, whatever they were, how are you supposed to pronounce that? I would yep. never really worked out how to pronounce it. Even I'm American, so I can pronounce it however I want. Welcome to freedom. Yeah. Yeah, they're pronouncing it in German if it wasn't for me, personally. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, so we're, we're going to play one of that. Uh, we'll be back really soon because I'm, I'm doing a solo project, which is to read easily the worst book I've ever read. Just um, Supermarket is Ulysses now compared to, compared to this book. I you even tried to I tried to read Fuckboy to join in. I just fucking stopped. Yeah. I was like, I can't don't, do this. Don't do it. Yeah, just <laughs> oh, don't, absolute it's just dog shit. It's um, fucking terrible. <laughs> so incredibly bad. It's easily the worst book. It's so I mean, I don't want to spoil too much because you're about to record it, but like you get, you'll hear complaints on like literary Twitter and especially the more transgressive art spaces about like young adult American young adult or not American adult young adult adult fans of young adult fiction. There we go. Or like Disney adults. God, they have fucking nothing on this. This is fucking dog shit. <laughs> no, if you like this, you're a, fa- a thousand times worse than the most awful like adult <laughs> fan of your adult fiction kind of. Um, they call it the squeak core at the moment. You are a thousand times better. You like if you were like abusing Isabel Fall online last year. If you and if you say things like if you say things are squee, if you you are just you are a god compared to someone who would enjoy um, the the book Fuck Boy. Let like, alone the guy who I, wrote it. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, tell me, tell me well. that you're going to get into the drama around it too. It, it's the, it, the the drama is so stupid. It's why would you? Dudes. Why would you sign up to be described as that? It's two dudes be like, bro, bro, I love you, man. I got so much mad love for you, bro, bro, bro. But you, you ain't respecting me. You know what I'm saying, man? You know, respect. You ain't got love for me. You ain't got love for what I've been through, man. And. It's like- um, it's like a fight between two different bootleg Boondock Saints posters. <laughs> it's it's like if a bored ape NFT could talk. Oh, Jesus! Oh, that's gonna that's gonna be a good episode. And then after yeah. that, me and Eden are recording one on the seas, which is a really sad novel about mermaids. Then we're gonna have Gretchen Falker Martin back on uh, to talk about Manhunt. 
Can't wait um, for that. God, yeah, no, we got a lot of really cool shit coming up. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, I, Lang doesn't even know this, but there's a, a good book about e- eco-fascism that I'm uh, I'm circling around. Um, yeah, but lots of stuff coming up. But um, you know what's coming up right now is Celeste. 